Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey everybody, welcome to Leading Simple. I'm your host, Rusty George, as we are trying to plow through what it means to deal with being overwhelmed. How do we get through that? And every single week around here, we try to lead simply through the overwhelming confusion of life. Hey, today we're going to deal with some very heady stuff uh, as we talk about how to deal with finances and world economy and uh, the GameStop uh, adventure that happened not so long ago. What does that mean to stock prices and the future of our finances, but specifically also how you as a business leader who happens to be a Christian can make that an impact in your life and business. We're going to talk with Ken Costa. And I'll get to more details about him in just a second. But I want to let you know today that our episode is sponsored by RG3. RG3 is a local production company that helps you tell your story on video. And they work with a lot of churches and individuals who just want to get some content out there. Maybe it's for your social media account. Maybe it's for uh, your kid getting into college and you need to put some highlight reels together. Or maybe it's your church and you want to learn more about social media and get some stuff out there or even record your services. The people at RG3 can help you out. Just contact them at rg3.prods at gmail.com or check them out on Instagram at rg3.productions. Well, today we're going to talk with Ken Costa, and you may not have heard that name before, but he is an incredibly influential leader. He started his career in banking. He served as the chairman of Europe, the Middle East, Africa, at the UBS Investment Bank. He served as the chairman of Lazard International from 2007 to 2011. He was professor of commerce at Gresham College, and he's the dean of Leadership College in London. He is the chairman of Alpha International, which promotes the Alpha course, and he's the author of God at Work in 2007, a book about Christianity's relationship to the workplace, and Know Your Why in 2016, a book about finding fulfillment in your calling. And so you're going to love this conversation. If nothing else, he's just got a great accent. So here's my conversation with Ken Costa. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, you are a fascinating individual that uh, you've done a lot of different things. And I want to start off by asking you about your day job, your main profession, which is investment banking. Tell us, what is that for all of us who are a little bit confused by that? Well, I like the idea, Rusty, firstly, that you think it's fascinating. It's a day <laughs> job um, and uh, I enjoy it. And I'm very grateful to you and to all the others that are going to be listening to this. So investment banking is just a sort of way of a whole bunch of people making us a little different from the high street bank or the the main street bank. But actually what we do is we facilitate the flow of capital, basically advise major corporations and institutions, put companies together, then having put them together, we unbundle them um, and... um, keep the merry-go-round going on. I'm being cynical, of course, but, uh, <laughs> but, but actually it is, uh, investment banks are really important to help uh, companies uh, oil the wheels of commerce, oil the wheels of finance, particularly in a global world. You know, you've got differences in currencies, you have differences in commodity prices, oil price goes up, oil price goes down. Mm. Airplanes need to, or airlines need to work out, you know, what their cost structure is. So they need to find financial instruments to be able to determine what the price is for the fuel in the airplane so that they could then make 
a price for a ticket on that aeroplane. So it's that facilitation, that agency within the financial markets to enable them to, to operate smoothly. Um, not always. Uh, we have crises um, uh, and, uh, and, and well. So yeah, that's, that's investment banking in, in a nutshell, 101. Well, I'm fascinated by this because at, at first glance, you would think, okay, you work with numbers. You must be, uh, you know, kind of that mentality of you like things in order and in place and routine and structure. But from what you're telling me, it sounds like there's a great deal of finesse and chemistry and, and, uh, um, and, and just creativity that goes into what it is you're doing. It seems like it can't always be the same. 100%. Um, there are lots of people who help me do the numbers. Um, and I will confess that um, I don't really know much about uh, spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> but what, what there is, is that connectivity, the people skills, the ability to bring people together, to understand you know, how these massive egos work when you're trying to merge two companies and pull them together. Mm. You know, who's going to get what, what the human issues are. Because long, long, long before you have to worry about the, the, the numbers, you have to have calculated how people will react. And, and that is a skill uh, that, that good bankers have. Yeah, at the end of the day, you're just dealing with people, right? Honey, that's so do you. That's what you do all day long. <laughs> that's right. That the is right. The only difference is you, you do it for one day a week and you can sort of have fun for the six. And, <laughs> and I've got to do it 24-7. I mean, you know, I'd like to be a pastor, I think. Yes, now you sound like my father. Oh, that's great. <laughs> okay, so let me ask a question. And, and at the time we're recording this, this is fresh, but by the time we air it, it'll be in the, our rearview mirror. The, the GameStop debacle that happened yeah. and Robin yeah. Hood. Explain yeah. all that to us. Pretend like I don't have a clue. Let's be complicated. Um, <laughs> where does one start? You have to understand that there is an, an attitudinal group of people who are young. They are millennials, in my view. They've seen a bunch of fat cats take away quite a, quite a lot of money, all wrapped up in Wall Street, all wrapped up with an elite, all wrapped up with the hedge funds of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, that's w- one grouping of people. And they came together uh, because there was a communal feeling, in my view, of saying, we're going to do something about it. And, and being smart, and it's COVID, not much else to do, um, decided that actually they're going to make money in so doing and presented a, a huge risk. So in essence, what happened is this group of people came together and started buying shares in a company where the major institutions were shorting it. And by short, we mean that you're selling something that you don't have Mm. in order to buy it back at a lower price and make some money. So for example, um, I'm a seller of of 100, you know, at 100 of the shares. Um, So I get the money in at 100 from you. I wait until the share price is 50. I buy them at 50 and I give you the shares and I've made 50. Mm. What these guys said is, okay, this is a game. You gaming the system. Tell you what, we're going to club together and start buying the shares such that they go up beyond 100 to 150, 200, 300, and thereby forcing these hedge funds one of whom lost $6 billion on it, 
to actually go higher and higher to buy more and more shares to deliver their obligations. I mean, this is a complicated um, thing for your podcast, but in a nutshell, <laughs> a grouping of people, mainly millennials, young people, young kids, got together. Uh, and, you know, there were five million people uh, on the uh, on the app, um, mm. uh, and so they started buying these shares and created the mayhem. But the point we have to we need to pay attention to is this: is that there is a generational inequality of a younger generation that doesn't feel that it is participating fully in the financial and economic system. And both as a financier and as a person in the church, we have to address that issue of people who feel they're outsiders. Now, you can be as cynical as you like, saying, well, they, were just made, they made a huge amount of money, uh, etc., but be unwise to forget the underlying uh, driver of those actions. Well, that's really well said. And that, once again, it just comes back to people. And we're broken, and we make decisions to try to uh, soothe that brokenness. And boy, what a what an interesting day that was. And I think you you really did make things a little bit more simple for us on, on that. Do you think we have more of those to come? Do you think that's kind oh, yeah. of the first of many? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that there is a whole new you know army of of, of people who feel excluded. Uh, you, you know, it's the same as social exclusion that has taken. The mindset, I mean, I don't want to be overdramatic about it, but the mindset that said to people that were socially excluded, you know, to demonstrate and take action is now transferred into the financial world. Mm. And, well, the only difference is someone's making or could make quite a lot of money. It's a highly risky thing. I, I advise all your, your listeners, whoever it is, this is not something you want to, you know, sort of go punting around and, as if it were in the casino. You've got to You've got to, you know, this, these are investments that take some thinking through, but there's the health warning. Okay. Okay. So for all of our listeners in LA that like to drive over to Vegas for a weekend, this isn't a substitute for that then? Not, not really, no. <laughs> not that the Vegas trip is a good idea either. Okay. So before we move off of the economy, since sure. I've got an expert here on the line, I really want to ask your thoughts on this. You know, the, the economy, um, specifically in the U.S., is where our listeners are from. I mean, so, what are your thoughts on this now versus when COVID began? We had a lot of talk of V-shaped recovery, L-shaped, U-shaped, K-shaped was a new one that came out. You know, where do you think we are now versus where we thought we'd be when all this began? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the one thing we've all learned is that there's no point in trying to forecast these things. Mm. We simply don't know. Um, I ask you a simple question. When's COVID going to end? Mm -hmm. uh, you tell me, you know, when, when is herd immunity going to arrive in the US? Mm -hmm. what, what I do know is I think there will be a snapback for the simple reason that the governments are pumping so much money into it. And then the new Biden bill, if it goes through, would put $2 trillion into the market. I don't know where they'll get to on the final numbers, but that's money in people's pockets. And people have been saving much more than they'd ever do before, because they'd be very, you know, you've been constrained in the places that you could, you, you can really spend on, I mean, online, obviously. But when this unleashes itself, and the economy grows, I think the second half of this year, we'll see what's happening. And I think there will be a bounce back, um, mm -hmm. uh, almost V-like. Mm -hmm. A lot of people buying up shares of GameStop, probably. Well, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. 
Never oh. about that. I think I choose the safer things. Walmart <laughs> and Disney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Forget Apple and Google and all that. Let's go right to well, GameStop. Sure that, but, um, <laughs> I'd also think of the other things people will be buying. That's right. Exactly. Okay, so let me ask you a little bit more on the, on the spiritual realm. Um, you are a Christ follower. You have devoted a lot of attention, energy, and resources into this incredible program uh, called Alpha. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with what Alpha is, would you explain it and then also share how it grabbed your heart and your attention? Sure. So um, I was at, uh, at University of Cambridge with Nikki Gumbel, who is the person who founded Alpha, uh, and is the driving force behind it. And for 16 years, I was the chairman of it actively. I'm now the emeritus chairman uh, of that. I think having done it for, uh, for long enough, I stay closely involved in it. And Alpha is a basic introduction to the Christian faith, which has been done as a course uh, online and together by nearly 30 million people worldwide. Uh, and that's all it is, really. It's it has no, it's, it's no pressure. It's a, it's a journey we take people on, an understanding of, you know, why, you know, is there a God? Why Jesus? Why read the Bible? What about church and other important topics? Uh, so that, that in a nutshell. I, I love Alpha, and we have, um, have done that, and I've been, uh, you know, a part of it before. And what I love about it is it's not just lectures with information. It's, it's questions, because once again, it's all about people. And there's a reason they're asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? There's a story behind that. And that's what I've always loved about Alpha, how it gets to the heart of the issues that people are dealing with. Has that been able to happen online, uh, primarily as Alpha has been over the past year? Alpha online is, uh, is, uh, is a significant growth point at the moment. Mm. Uh, and the, the Alpha film series is brilliantly done. Um, and watch groups or smaller alpha groups, as you might want them to call them, people meeting in their homes or two or three people on Zoom. Um, it's a great opportunity to, uh, to invite people to, to join in with you because it's so unthreatening. Mm -hmm. But it, we need hope. We need the good news to be, to be told to a new generation who, who need to hear this. Right. Otherwise, it, it, you know, we, we are lost. You know, I want to ask you about that because there has been a lot of loss over the last year, a lot of feeling of despair, hopelessness. And I know that you deal with some of the wealthiest people in the world, and they know you're a person of faith. When they ask you things like, why would your God allow this? You know, what, what have you found as the best way to answer that question um, or give a little bit of guidance or hope? Well, the... The real issue for us is that the real answer is the one we always dodge and wait for last. You cannot explain any of this other than in the person of Jesus. It's not possible. So you have to start right there that, you know, here was someone who died and suffered for us. So if you, if you, if you think of, of evil, if you think of, 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 of harshness, of marginalization, of, of any of the major issues that we're facing. Jesus took them on the cross. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is the central piece. And it, it is a stumbling block. I wrote a book called Strange Kingdom, mm -hmm. which was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the person martyred by the Nazis, who said that a, a king who dies on a cross 
is the king of a very strange kingdom. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, we have a strange kingdom. It is weird, Mm -hmm. but it's the power of God for salvation. So I'm afraid you have to start there because otherwise you're in a philosophical morass that you just simply cannot get out of. You'll be tangled up within 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, and I think we see this certainly in first world countries. We just assume that when life is going good, then we're blessed by God, and that's what his goal is for us, always up and to the right, and everything is wonderful. But you're right, we have a king that not only suffered, he promised us we would too. So why should we, uh, should we think that that would never happen? Totally agree. I think uh, the idea that you will have you know, uh, even life and the pursuit of happiness hmm. might be an objective for secular society. It is not an objective for the mm-hmm. creation of hope. And hope is what we most need. You know, I was just at the year end, I was giving a message which said, you know, during this last year, we had a period of what I call gracious humbling, in which, you know, we were allowed to be humbled by God. He didn't humiliate us, but he did humble us. Uh, in a way in which we'd got quite cocky about dealing with God, and we know the programs, we know what succeeds, we know how to, to run our churches. And I think that, we, that for, when I see so many young people, pastors, business people, spending more time with God, praying more, meditating more, reading the Bible more, this has been a year of humbling. But the mm. coming year is what I would call gracious hope-filling. Now, I, I don't say hope. Because every politician tells you, we've got great hope for the future. You know, if, if you just say, I'm hopeful that it will turn out, you're kind of hedging your bet, you know. I'm kind of hopeful, but, you know, maybe it won't. But to be hope-filled each day is to believe that, you know, Jesus Christ makes a difference to my day-to-day life, whether I'm in a school, in a gym, in a, in a hospital, on a, on a playing field, in a, in a workplace, in a church, wherever it happens to be. And that is the transforming power of the Spirit of God. Hmm. That's so well said. Uh, I want to ask you about, uh, here again, we talk about it comes down to people. And one of the the things that we've lost the most during COVID is a sense of control. And we talk about that a lot on this podcast, certainly this year as we talk about mental health. The, the, The more out of control we feel, the more hopeless we feel and desperate and all that. And our assumption, you know, both pre-COVID and during COVID is if I had more money, then I would feel more control. But you deal with some of the wealthiest people in the world. How do they sense control, even though they have a great amount of resources? Well, control is a really, really important issue. And it's the one great issue that hit us in every way. Because a tiny little virus carried by a bat in Wuhan province shut the global economy down. And we were unable to control the finances globally. This is not just one or two countries. Um, spiritually, our churches were at sea because we didn't know quite how to help people through that. The healthcare system everywhere is under pressure. It produced social unrest, the likes of which we've never seen, the Black Lives Matter and, and other sort of situations, both in your country and, and, in, and in ours, uh, and, and a sense of disassociation. So the macro picture was that we had lost this control, and the worst piece of, it, piece of it, there was a very good piece in the Harvard Business Review, was that there is a grief that has hit us, mm. because that which we lost 
we long for, but we also know that that which we want to have, we can't have. The, the, we, 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 so we're grieving the loss of control. And the issue, of course, that we now face and all investment managers and wealthy people, whatever it is, is how do I make a decision now on the basis of something that I do not know is going to be coming upon us next year, not, you know, with the normal factors of economic performance that we might have, but simply pandemically, uh, or, you know, and, and that is the issue that whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a billionaire or a struggling student, every one of us is struggling with that issue of control. And the question I ask is, who put you in the control room? Why did we take over these controls? We were never meant to be. We weren't wired to be uh, mm -hmm. that because God himself uh, is the one that will control and who knows the future. You know, with that in mind, what is the best advice you've been given during economic downturns when it feels like there's a loss of control and just good financial advice as well? I mean, what's advice you've been given that you thought, boy, that was really helpful, and you pass that along? You, that your leadership model, wherever you are, has to have one quality, flexibility. You have to be a flexible leader. You have to be able to understand that you cannot plot a direct course. You have to be able to change. I mean, you know, everyone, you know you'll be laughed at if you think you're developing a three-year plan. Um, you have no idea what's going to happen in the next three weeks. Will the, will the people come back to church in a church setting? Um, are, are they going to buy the same products, you know, in a world setting that they bought last, last year? Who knows? So therefore, you have to have that flexibility and working with teams one has to allow the team to be also, you, you have to model to the team that being flexible is actually being resilient and that the firmness of, of view, of intention, of direction, of driving this, you've got to get this done, actually it becomes a joke. Hmm. Because you, you, you know, you're just going to get it wrong with a maximum intensity. Hey, we're going to take a brief pause from our conversation today to talk about this very exciting thing that's coming up. And sometime this month, we will hit 1 million downloads of the podcast. I cannot say thank you enough to you for doing this. It's because you subscribe and you share and you listen that we're able to keep doing this. And it is so fun for me to be able to be a part of your life. And we want to celebrate. And so as we hit our 1 millionth download, we're going to give out several different gift baskets that are filled with Starbucks cards, a leading simple mug, and signed copies of all my books and some other goodies as well. All you got to do to be part of the raffle for those gifts is go to PastorRustyGeorge.com to register. Just go to PastorRustyGeorge.com, sign up there for the millionth download giveaway, and we would love to put you in that that raffle to possibly get that great gift that we're sending out. We're sending out several, so the chances are good. Make sure that you sign up for that today. Okay, thanks again. Back to our show. You, you know, you're just going to get it wrong with a maximum intensity. So, you know, we put so much pressure on ourselves, pastors as well, to look at the metrics, figure out the drivers, crank it up a little bit next year. But we have lost all of our bearings on what metrics even look like right now. 100%. So, so for pastors and for business leaders out there, 
you know, your advice is obviously to stay flexible, but we're no longer thinking three-year plans. What What's the thing that we can put our stake in rather than just be flexible? Are, are you sensing companies right now are developing some sort of boundaries or, you know, some uh, guidelines to move ahead with? Well, it's, it is the most extraordinary period of time because mm-hmm. you try and think what the boundaries are, what are they? Are they... Uh, to deal with um, uh, equality of, of genders and gender fluidity in the in the workplace? Are they to do with the environment? Do we have to recalibrate an entire way in which we present our accounts? Let me give you an example. The 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 value of an Amazon of Amazon at the moment is I don't know what it is one and a half trillion dollars in the balance sheets of the pension funds of the uh, whatever you call them your one o whatever's the saving plans that you have. But the Amazon forest, which is, a, which is an oxygen level of the, of the kingdom, of the, world, of the globe, is valued in no balance sheet at anything other than the wood that is chopped down and sold and which depletes the oxygenation of the world. So we have to find an entire new way of recalibrating the way we determine what it is that we think is success. And so it's very difficult to be able to put a finger on it uh, when you see massive inequalities in the workplace, inequalities of race, inequalities of of gender, uh, and a rethinking of a global environment in which we see an environment that is threatened. Mm. Uh, There are major, major, major issues. Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, the, probably the largest money manager in the world, was saying it's going to cost $50 trillion to, to, to create the decarbonization that the world needs in the next 20 or 30 years. If that's the case, then we all ha- we're all going to have to participate in financing this, in our savings, in the investments that we make. And mm. also because I think it is an agenda of God. I do mm. think we need to take seriously if we want to maintain a link into this next generation in the millennial generation and talk to them about the importance of the church and of God and the community of people. You cannot separate it out from the world in which they're living. I love that idea. And, and you've posed there several different great opportunities people have to throw their influence behind and certainly their funds behind in dealing with people that are um, incredibly wealthy they obviously want to make a difference and they, they want to be known as somebody who makes a difference. Well, well some do, some do, Rusty, some do. <laughs> well, well, I said be known as, not necessarily do it. Um, but in that case, um, you know, walk us through the mindset uh, of people when they think through, what am I going to give my money to? What are the, the, the philanthropic uh, activities I'll be involved in? Is it just something that catches their interest or maybe their kids are interested in? What, how are they choosing where they are generous? Well, there are two things about that. Firstly, it's a big canvas. It depends. Your father died of cancer. You want to give your money to cancer research. You came to faith and it turned your life because you were an addict. You want to help in your local church or in, you know, in, in addictive uh, programs. So it, it is very largely an individual choice. However, the accumulation of wealth over this period of time has led 
to a number of the younger generation, challenging an older generation to be more generous in giving away uh, mm. sums of money. The moment that happens, what, what, the, what the whole trend is, is, is for impact investing. In other words, I want to be sure that the money that I give is properly stewarded. And I think that's a very good biblical principle behind that, both as a steward of, of the resources that we have and also uh, in terms of the talents that we are deploying. I mean, after all, how did they double the money when the, the servant got his talents? You had to take a risk. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't mean bought a boat and then sold the boat, bought some fish, sold the boat. I, mean, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is there is an assessment of a quantifiable increase. And so people are looking to those well-run organizations 20 or 30 years ago, you'd give it on impulse. Ah, you know, they're doing so well. I love this evangelistic program. I like to do this. I like to do that. Just give them some money. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a much greater intentionality between following your finance and your investment to ensure that it is producing serious returns for the key philanthropic objectives that you and your family have. Mm. And I think that's a key statement right there. What are the key philanthropic objectives that your family has? And a lot of us haven't really thought through that. That is a, that is a great, great idea. That is true. But I think the first thing, I think for, for Christians, the majority of those listening here, I honestly believe that your first responsibility is to the community and the church that you belong to uh, and to enable that church collectively to express the kingdom of God, whether it is in feeding, feeding schemes, evangelistic schemes, uh, helping the people who are sleeping rough, hospitals, whatever it might be. I think that is the first. Mm-hmm. And then thereafter, I think one creates something that you feel you can invest yourself in as well as your money, but also using the rigorous skills that business people have uh, in order to ensure that there are good returns uh, for, for that money. That's so well said. And I think we continue to see studies put out. If, if, the, if all people that consider themselves Christ followers actually did tithe to their local church, most of these nonprofits and organizations we fund wouldn't even be needed because the church would be able to provide all the basic needs of everybody on the planet. True, Rusty. But the, the reciprocal is the church has got to be uber careful about how it spends the the money that it receives from its donor bases. And there are many examples in your country and in ours and elsewhere where that is being questioned. So I think in this season, particularly, transparency is very important. It is. And social media is the great judge of a lot of that. And Not the definitive judge. (laughs) In the court of public opinion, yes. It certainly has a view. Oh, okay. So I want to ask you um, just, and we talked about this briefly before we hit record, but here we are post-COVID. And what is your prayer for the church as we come out of this? Uh, I think we've learned a lot about ourselves. Somebody used the metaphor of it's like the lake has been drained and we see all the junk on the bottom of the lake. You know, what is it that you, your prayer is for the church moving forward? Well, that it will be the carrier of hope um, and the carrier of hope. I don't know. I don't know what that future is going to look like, 
but I do know the person that I want to be attached to, the person of Jesus mm. uh, and, the, and the Spirit of God to lead me into that, into that future. I think that is, that is my, my, my great hope, the first. The second is that the churches who have created a sense of belonging amongst their people will be the ones that will have a hot, a hot core that will be attractive um, to the communities in which they're operating. And those that have provided entertainment, um, you know, Robbie Williams style, you know, let me entertain you, are going to be casualties. And so they should be. So that I think that it, this refining fire, there is a refining that is going on. But at the same time, a strengthening of those that are belonging together to work in a community in order to establish these Christ centers. Because a lot of talk about communities going on, you know, WhatsApp groups in neighborhoods, getting together to help the local hospitals to feed, etc. The church is different because the church is a community uniquely invested by the Spirit of God mm. uh, to be able to achieve you know, a, a function quite different from a simple community in the world. And that we will need to discover. And when we discover mm. that, I think there's going to be the most exciting future uh, that will touch commerce, media, finance, um, education, all, all, all the things we want to see influenced. I love that idea. Uh, that, that will certainly get us back to what it is to be the church. That's fantastic. You've written several books, uh, God at Work, Know Your Why, and then your most recent, I got to tell you this story before I get into it. So my... Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, uh, we were having a conversation a few months ago, and I said, so tell me what version Bible app you're reading right now. And she said, I'm doing a 10-day study on Joseph of Arimathea. And I said, 10 days? He's, <laughs> he's mentioned, I think, once or twice in the Bible. Are you kidding me? And she laughed, and she said, yeah, it's really good. And I said, well, it sounds like someone's making a mountain out of a molehill. Well, then I come to find out that I'm going to interview the author of the book on Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, first of all, I'm humbled and honored, and my daughter thinks it's hilarious. So, I mean, this is a guy that is, uh, you know, just kind of a footnote in the story of Jesus, but you got some great information out of him, a businessman who yes. ends up taking a, a, a key role for just a small amount of time. Tell us what, what caught your attention about Joseph of Arimathea. Two things. The first was his, I mean, there are only 16 verses, but they are in all four of the Gospels. Mm. The first was when the Sanhedrin decided to convict Jesus, it says he did not agree in Luke's Gospel. He did not agree with their decision or their action. He was not part of the majority. He was prepared to stand against the majority. Mm. And I think we really need to learn that. We have a message that not everybody wants to buy into. Uh, and we need to stand for freedom of speech. We need to be clear about what we want our children to be taught. We want to be clear about what our universities and colleges are teaching. Uh, we want to be clear to stand up for the truth rather than for some fake truth. That was the first thing. The second was when it came to taking the body down, this is a broken body that is blood-filled and everything else just smelling. Where were the big dogs? Where, were the, where was the family? Where were the key people who are on Instagram and on their Twitter feeds and who get more YouTube followers? Where were they? 
They pulled out, they crossed the state lines. Two business people, Nicodemus, Joseph, did the dirty work, as often happens with business people. You know, we, we pick up, you know, this, this stuff. <laughs> you know, no, 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 no disrespect intended. Oh, and he carried, the body, he carried the body of Jesus. What did he do? He formed a partnership with Nicodemus. He, they, they, they put the money together because the spices cost a lot of money. So they, they actually sort of contributed each way. And they carried this body into something that was his own, which was the tomb. And on that Saturday, you had this massive crisis and, you know, temple veils being pulled across on the Friday. On the Monday, the, you know, the light shone, resurrection came. But Saturday was silent. Where was God on Saturday? And Joseph did not know how the story was going to end. He did not know. He did what he did because it was the right thing to do. Uh, for you could saw an, a, an, a just man unjustly punished. And he did the mopping up, carried the body of Jesus. And that, I think, is a compelling story for us in COVID. We don't know how this is going to end. But there is a silent Saturday in the life of every single Christian person mm. when it looks as if heaven is closed and you just have to get on, put the money together, form the partnership and do the right thing. And mm. sometimes it'll be just the small things. He was a footnote. He was um, you know, a postscript to the great drama. And we never hear of him again. Mm. So that's fascinating. What, that's why I... I loved it. It's a great, and as we come up to Easter and and Lent, it's a great. He's a great guy. Get to know Joe. Good guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can see how you get ten days out of that and a whole book. So I, I, I'm buying what you're selling. Well, um, can I want to just um, leave on on this note? We have, uh, as as all ministries go, whether it's Alpha, whether it's Campus Crusade for Christ, whether it's a church. There's somebody behind it that has really made it happen. <clears throat> we read about the people that helped, you know, get the printing press off the ground or Tyndale translate the Bible or various things like that. There's usually a, somebody financing it behind the scenes. We see that in, in, in some of the things that you have talked about. Here you are, a guy with a day job that's, you know, meeting with heads of states and popes and all kinds of different people to help with financial decisions. And yet, you believe in the church, you're funding the church, you're making it happen. To all of our business people out there who spend 60 to 70 hours a week doing their day job and they're a part of a church that they believe in, how would you encourage them? Well, I would say two things. Um, I would say the first is that it's, it's a privilege that we get to do what we do. It, it really is that we are able to use our skills in the marketplace and also to use that which God is blessing us for to the extension of his kingdom. So, you know, just regard it as a privilege. It's not what you have to give. It's what you get the opportunity to be able to give. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's a very important piece. But for the pastors, I would say this. Treat your business people as people who you want to invest in as people, not because they're great milk cows and during vision days and and offering days and kingdom days, you grab the others and milk them for all it's worth, hoping that it's fat, cream, and you know, etc. You get the image. 
the more you invest in those in those people, just as people coming alongside them, tough times in their businesses, the odd call, the having a drink together or whatever your tradition allows you to do, um, <laughs> pizza. We're in uh, California. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, you come alongside them, uh, not with a view of, of, of some short-term gain, but because it reflects your interest in them as people. And as a result of that, you will find them not only being generous in their giving, but in their, in their skill set, being able to help out in the marketing department, the finance department, um, the teaching, whatever it might be. It's an integrated relationship between the, the, the people in the marketplace and the pastors. Now, the problem for the pastors is that none of your training teaches you any of this. Um, but it's the crucial piece. Now, 97% or whatever it is now, 94% of the people in your church are working. They're employed. Um, I mean, it's not just sort of some odd event. And so, you know, one does have to have an, a, a, a way of working with the people that are in your pew every Sunday or listening to you online. And I think that it's a two-way investment. And, and in this next season, I think there's going to be a significant growth of people who are going to want to be both, you know, active in the church, but also active in their businesses, their startups, in the mm. creative industries. That's great. I certainly hope so. Ken, this has been a joy. I've heard you on other people's podcasts, uh, our, our friends, Carrie and Brad Lominick, and uh, <clears throat> I've always appreciated your words, but getting to talk face to face with you via Zoom, of course, and over the continents, it's uh, what, what a blessing this is. So thank you well, for all that you've done. You're too kind, you're too kind. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to get to do what we do. I mean, it is, you know, we, we have a precious good news you know, sometimes we think it's only for Christians. It isn't. Right. The Bible is the prospectus, if you allow that image, for good living for everybody. And our society really, really needs it. The divisions in the society are unsustainable. But the, the church is a unique opportunity to be able to draw people together in this next generation. Love that. Thank you, Ken. Well, as always, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and share this with somebody else. That would just mean the world to me. And I'd love to hear from you. You can DM me on Instagram at RustyLGeorge or email me at rgeorge at reallifechurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.